Hello. Dreadbull. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. Yeah. Okay. There See we are. You? My beautiful face. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we are. I'm, I'm still on cloud nine, guys, from earlier. <laughs> so. Nice. <laughs> Pretty awesome. I'm, all day, man. What a gentleman. What a yeah. tremendous guest and uh, great interview. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was that was cool, man. These they've all been great. I mean, all these they've, they've have been, have been right? awesome. I've been thinking to myself all day today. I've just been pitching myself, like, what are we doing? Are you I still can't get over it, you know? Because it's like if you think we go to all these shows, we're there's no way in hell we're going to meet like face to face like this and yeah. do this like we're doing. And now if you, if you do, it's like two minutes. Hey, I'm a big fan. I love your stuff. Oh, thanks. And then you're on your way. There's no yeah. chance to really talk, you know, just right. no, no way possible to talk. No. Yeah. So. Not to get to know them, hear these stories. Um, yeah. them being so relaxed cause they're on, you know, they're on the rock star mode or, you know, right. that's not, it's not derogatory, but they have to be on. Yeah. And, and now they're just like relaxed and hanging out with us in their yeah. houses. If you and, meet them backstage, you're you're competing with maybe 20, 30, 50 other people, you know, that also have backstage right. passes or whatever. And, it, you know, and it's, it's just, it's just. And you're thinking about, you know, incredible. like, I, I look, I, I'm looking ahead, like, oh, we're going to think back at this and all these memories we're going to have. All of us combined. This is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, this is Ralph Sheepers and you're listening and watching to Heavy Metal Horror. I am Montag, master of illusion. What goes up must come down, but not always. Hey, I'm Chop Top. Keep it heavy. And Dreadbull. No, don't shake your head. Ah, Dreadbull. Don't shake your head. Moniker fluid. Dreadbull. <laughs> I bet maybe I'm just getting more comfortable calling you Dread. I don't know. We'll see. You'll, 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 it'll get, you'll get, it, it's I'll it's embrace good. it. Yeah. I knew it was being some it. adjustment period. It's like going to prison. Eventually you're just going to get used to taking it. It's like, uh, I don't want it, but I'm going to take it. Listen to these two assholes. You, gotta, you know, we're getting, yeah. <laughs> and you are listening to Heavy, heavy, heavy Metal. Oh, tonight's show, kiddies, promises to be a good one. Uh, this is our first, I think, first new form of the uh, deep dive. Well, we, we did a top five before. It wasn't quite the deep dive, but now we're getting our format down. It's a pseudo deep dive. Yeah. Testament. Yeah. And now we're going to be doing a deep dive into uh, one of our all-time favorite bands, Rush. And we are breaking it down by era. We we're going to talk about the first four studio albums and the first live album. So we're talking Rush all the way to all the worlds of stage. And, uh, you know, I'll just start by saying I love this era of Rush. There is something kind of a, you see, it's, there's pure elements in it that carry themselves throughout their entire career. You see the foundations of that. When you go back to listening to these early albums, you hear those things like, oh, yeah, okay, this, this is where they started that. And I just, I just love it. And these are normally albums I don't go back and listen to a lot. 
I mean, it's been a long time since I've listened to Rush, uh, just because of just mourning Neil Peart's passing. But now that I'm allowing myself to go back and, and celebrate rather than just be heartsick, I'm, I'm kind of embracing them again. Not that I ever didn't, but they just seem more precious now to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what I'll say about Rush. And I'll just kind of leave it up to you. What, what you have any thoughts about just this era before we, before we start plugging into one album at a time? Red Bull? Well, I, 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 I think, I, I'm sorry. I, I think that uh, this era... You know, they, they came out right out of the gates and they had a very Zeppelin-esque sound, you know, and it you could see even during this this first four album period how they expanded and grew, got more progressive. And it, and that's what I appreciate the most about it. I think that, uh, you know, because I remember right out of the gates and I was going to mention it on their, their self-titled album, really they broke in the States with help from WMMS. Mm-hmm. That was actually on their documentary. Yep. Yes, and did. Uh, work, working man, because I remember they were they were saying some of the DJs used to work there. They were calling up and saying, "Hey, you gonna play that new Zeppelin song again?" And they're like, "Oh, that's Rush." And uh, so, really, Cleveland put them helped put them on the map in the states. Yep. That's why they and, love uh, Cleveland, and that's why they yeah. did their Time Machine tour here. You know, they recorded yeah. the show. They've always had a soft spot for Cleveland because we were the first first state or city in the states that embraced them. You know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just, you know, it progressed from each album to album. You still had the elements even on, we'll get to it and fly by night and everything of Zeppelin and stuff. But when you get Caressive Steel and even on to Farewell and stuff, it, it's just like, or 2112, excuse me, they're honing their own sound. They're creating an identity for themselves and becoming more confident, especially with Neil Peart adding it after the first self-titled album, after John Rutsey was it. And John Rutsey was no slouch on that first self-titled album. He was a good drummer. So he was a good rock um, drummer. Yeah, yeah, rock drummer. Okay. I don't the, think playing no, for the music. I yeah, I don't think he could have took. He, he couldn't go into more progressive stylings with Rush. It, no. it, it had to take somebody like Neil to do that. John yeah. couldn't yeah. do that, but it stars a straight ahead solid right. rock. I agree with you, Montag. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Their formation, the very you know the very beginnings of Rush uh, back. I don't know how young they were, but yeah, with John Rutsey and Jeff Jones was their original singer. They were teenagers. I guess you could kind of say, yeah, I think they were teenagers, uh, high schoolers. Yeah, high school kids, uh, right. Playing gigs, you know, around various high schools and stuff in their early days. And uh, I think it was their their second, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Jeff Jones didn't last long. It was their second gig. He decided to go to a party and do some drinking and (laughs) Alex wasn't having it. So he, he, he. He asked uh, Getty to to jump in there and fill in for him, and uh, yeah, so that's how that's how Getty uh, joined the band on their very second, uh, guess guess you could say second Rush gig, uh, non professional gig. So sounds like the story um, of the Escape Fetal Pigs. Our first first day of a, <laughs> as a band, we played three shows. Do we need to do an Escape Fetal Pig Pigs Day? We need, dive we, you know, do need to have an Escape Fetal Pigs Day. Yeah. Behind the, the scenes. Music. Yeah, behind the, behind music. the music. Fetal Pigs from Charles Webb. Yeah, I'm and all for that. Tragedy struck. <laughs> That's right. You know? Mark's lumbar five burst in his back. <laughs> he couldn't drum right now. Well, man. Uh, yeah, so that that's an interesting how it happened. I mean, and then they were, you know, they got this first record and there were lots of comparisons to Zeppelin. Some of it I think is earned. 
I'm mm-hmm. not a Zeppelin fan. Absolutely. I know I'll get the I'll get the hate because like just like you, Dreadbull, you don't not like a Zeppelin, Zeppelin fan. Wow. I have bad associations with Zeppelin with other people. I think that's what it is. I, and I, mm-hmm. I I gotta work on taking away the people element out of the out of the equation and trying mm-hmm. to enjoy it on my own. But those rows run deep. Um, <laughs> you know, and then when I hear, you know, it's a hard rocking album with with songs that are also very emotive. And, and emotional in the music, you can kind of hear those seeds. But songs like Need Some Love are that yeah. standard, like, you know, Gotta Get Laid kind of lyrics. And, and they're like, Ugh. But then you have Here Again, which is soulful. And that melody chord shift in the middle I lo- of the verse, I just kind of love that. And that screamy high-end notes, you know, and the, the big flange sound on licensed guitar, it would become mm-hmm. a staple of their sound in this early era. Um, and then that solo is kind of mournful and passionate, you know, and I know Dreadbull, you're all about the passionate solos, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I just think you hear those kinds of songs and then you, then you got like what you're doing with a great groove. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I don't want to step over your toes cause I want you to talk about them too. Um, before and after you got that first two minutes of really dreamy, which we'll hear that sound kind of revisited and caress of steel. Um, and then you got the anthem working, man. I mean, this is a solid record f- for a first album yeah. for any band. Well, and get, I would put this up with it any. Yeah, band. and get this. So a little yeah. note that I I dug up um, when they went in the studio to record that album, uh, Rutsy had written all the lyrics for this album, oh. and uh, but on the uh, on the day Getty was to come in and record his vocals, Rutsy just tore them all up, and he wouldn't rewrite them. He wouldn't write new ones. So Getty had to hurry up and write lyrics for the songs so they could record something like they with their studio time. So a lot of these, a lot of these songs are just like spur of the moment, Getty Lee writing lyrics spur of the moment. So, you know, you kind of hear some of the light cheesiness of, you know, yeah. In the mood and stuff like, Hey baby, you know, some of the, (laughs) they were just scrambling to write some lyrics to go with the music. Why did he tear up the lyrics? What happened? I don't know if it, I, I don't know. I don't know if he just wasn't happy with them and didn't want them to go to you know be recorded. Maybe he was a little ashamed of them. I never read anything about the the reasoning behind why he did what he did. Um, that's pretty crazy. But so um, I mean, some of the lyrics were like stuff that he remembered from earlier versions. Um, you know, but he had to kind of fill in the blanks from there by from memory wow. and just make up new stuff. So <laughs> well, that's pretty crazy. crazy. That is pretty yeah. crazy. Knowing that, and then that's even, I, I can forgive the cheesiness of Need Some Love. You right, know? yeah. Because you realize, <laughs> oh, this guy's scrambling to write a song. It's like, uh-huh. who hasn't done that? I got five minutes mm-hmm. to write a song? Okay, well, here you go. Right. You know? Right. I mean, it could have been Beaver of Love. You know? Songs <laughs> about that. <laughs> uh, well, what do you think about that first album there, Dreadbull? Yeah, it's uh I mean it's definitely not what Rush would become like many bands every every band it seems that we cover their first album or two aren't exactly you might hear some seeds of later things but uh you know Neil wasn't part of the band at this point and he he became the the lyricist later when he joins we'll, and we'll get to that but uh uh so yeah it, it was a product of its time you know late 60s early 70s mm-hmm. rock and roll you know hard rock rock and yeah. roll and of course zeppelin yeah. maybe some deep purple stuff like that it's yeah. all throughout this album so but it's still good like a band like rush can even take 
music, you know, sort of radio play music, and you hear it, and there's something different about it. Like, Rush has their own sort of magic formula, even when they're writing songs like In the Mood, that makes it a little different. There's something mm-hmm. something there, uh, you know, that's that sets them apart. But, uh, yeah, it's a good album. Uh, interesting. Yeah, for, for the first go, and considering the story behind it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On top of that, you know, it, it was released in 74, and I, I think uh, the highlights, obviously, you guys all know, Finding My Way, What You're Doing, Working Man. It was traditional rock, Zeppelin-esque at times, you know, and that's why they were so highly compared, especially with Getty's vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, there was hints, though, at Progressive. It was just hints, shades. It wasn't a lot there, but you're like, okay, where's this going to go? And, and then also, I thought, here again, that's blues. That, that song is blues, period, which was interesting because Rush uh-huh. doing blues. I, it, but not sure, I don't think, what identity they wanted to be. They were already showing mm-hmm. their versatility and talent as musicians, though. Um, and, and what you're doing was covered, actually, or not, by Skid Row on the B-Sides Ourselves EP, which is actually a pretty good cover. Oh, That's nice. Job on that. And in, in the Mood reminds me of a Kiss riff. That guitar part, it just reminds me of a Kiss riff, like a clap from mm-hmm. something from Rock and Roll Over or something. So, yeah, yeah, right. I, yeah, I think it's really cool. Good, good intro to the band. Their lyrics to Need Some Love also remind me of Kiss. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. not a, a little less artistic, you know, <laughs> something like Come On and Love Me, which uh, we will have to do Kiss just to make Dreadbull listen. We have to do Kiss. I know. Yes. At least that classic first couple albums leading right. up to Kiss Alive. I, I or we kiss alive and live too. I think we got to make him listen to those six. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so uh, yeah, another interesting thing I, I found. Um, so they were basically doing like this high school tour uh, about this time before they really broke out with like with with MMS playing their music yeah. and stuff. And um, uh, something that kind of helped them break out in Canada at the time was they changed the drinking age from twenty one to eighteen. And so yes. that let Rush start playing in bars and, and clubs and stuff. And this is what really let uh, allowed them to start, you know, getting out there a lot more and, and getting bigger audiences and start to uh, gain mm-hmm. popularity. <laughs> it was the drop in drinking age. That's great. That was, pretty I know, I that, from the, that was remember from the documentary that was actually in that. Getty and I think Alex both yeah. talked about that. But, so. You know, those <laughs> gigs also help you hone your ability to play. You know, nothing, nothing better than playing live for a band that's working to find an identity because that's how you learn to play with one another and learn to trust one another. And you, you kind of get in that syncopation and, uh, you know, or, or synced up rather, not syncopation and mm-hmm. rhythm as people and nothing will do that better than playing live. And, mm-hmm. uh, for, especially Point. for a band whose members want to, want to play together. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. So we got this kind of forces aligning and then with the the drummer you know he he just i think i think he was like sick right didn't he have diabetes or something and then something yeah he wasn't wasn't able to continue playing i think that's why he had to leave well yeah Mm -hmm. and and um, among other things uh at that time when they were starting to write stuff for their second album for fly by night uh getty and alex were kind of wanting to go more progressive more complex Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. And um, Rutsy didn't really like. He liked straightforward rock. He liked the stuff they were playing on Rush, and uh, he didn't really like the touring life. Yeah, he 
He wasn't a yeah, fan of touring and the diabetes issues caused him to miss months uh, of time when they were supposed to be out touring and stuff. So mm -hmm. eventually, yeah. in like July of 74, he, he, he left the band and yeah, uh, well, that's yeah. hard. And, I mean, cause they weren't, they weren't touring at a glamorous life. No. You know, they were touring on, yeah, you know, no. driving in a bus or, you know, like a VW bus or something mm -hmm. or a van and, you know, getting nothing. I, I remember on that documentary chop top, um, where they looked back on those early days and I think they had, they had a tour. It was like over the course of a year, they had 220 one night play, you know, stands like one night shows where they would go to a city 220 in a year. And that was after Neil Peart came in, but that kind of stuff, that's going to make you learn your craft. You know I mean? You're playing yeah. in these dives, these little holes and you're learning to play, you know, but still just rough. You know, you're, well, I, I think a lot, a lot goes, a lot goes with that being said. You know, we talked about Rutsy was a traditional rock drummer. I mean, he could not, you know, and obviously he felt like this is, I'm in my comfort zone. This is it. I can't do right. the things, obviously, that we found out that Neil could do later stuff. So yeah, just for the and music. the audition, what won the audition is Neil walks in with this tiny little drum kit, and he starts playing these machine gun triplets. That's what he said. You know, and they said they were like, looked at each other like, oh, I think this is the guy. <laughs> and I think he, he got the gig like, I think he had like six days before they were going to hit the road with this album, like touring this record. And yeah. so I think he had like six days to learn. I mean, fortunately, the songs are not that complex, but still six days to learn the intricacies of those albums, of those songs. You know, like when Yannick, I'd asked him about how many days he had between tours with, with between Bruce and Maiden. He had three days. Like, yeah. Well, that explained why his solos the way they were. They were not Adrian Smith solos. Because, you know, you I can't, got three days. Yeah, you can't do that in that time. No, no. I got three days. I'm going to, you know, if I can play him, that's good enough. So, yeah, here comes Fly By Night. Now, 1975 was a really big year for Rush because Fly By Night came out, I think, in February or March. And then Caressa Steel came out in November of that year. So they have released yeah, two records. Two releases. Yeah, yeah. in that right. year. So my first Hunters. note for Fly By Night is what a difference a drummer can make. You know, mm -hmm. it's like it's like hearing the first time you hear where Eagles there, that first song that Nico McBrain plays for my Iron Maiden, you're like, oh, oh, you know, it's like kicks mm -hmm. up. It kicked up the band or when that new, new drummer came in for Priest on Painkiller. I don't know the guy's name. Oh, yeah. But Scott you, you hear that. Yeah. You hear that intro like, oh, fuck, you know, so here he comes, you know, fly by night comes in immediately their musical landscape was changing and and lyrically night and day with songs like beneath between and behind kind of zeppelin -y musically but lyrically you got this fantasy and i call Piercian poetry you know anthem has this bombastic then groovy kind of feel mm -hmm. you know guitars are kind of spacey and full of that big flange sound best i can it sounds like the first album it's a lot and it's musically style uh, as to the first album. It's a, it's a rocker, you know? Mm -hmm. But then you got By Tour and the Snow Dog, eight plus minutes of high and dark fantasy. I, yeah. mean, I remember just being blown away that a band would could write a song about that. Like, who is this guy? What is a snow dog? What are they doing out here in this realm, you know? Yeah. And I was like totally enthralled. And then the, here comes Rivendell, which is big, so quiet, you can barely hear the oh, lyrics. Yeah. I'm like, oh my god, the Hobbit! What the hell, guys? Mm -hmm. 
and then I love the end in the end how it finishes with that slow tempo, this groovy <sighs> rock. You know, I mean, Fly By Night is it is just such a big album compared to what they had done. Like, what a leap musically, lyrically, from where they had gone. I mean, the fact that Neil Peart was a a book worm and just could read and loved fantasy and started writing that. I bet, I bet the rest of the guys were like, oh, shit, we have some lyrics now. Okay, cool. We're not going to write yet laid songs all the well, time. That's exactly what happened. You know, not at all did Neil come in and, 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 you know, his drumming prowess is legendary, but they gave him the, the lyric duties because he, he read so much. He had such a great vocabulary that they're like, okay, you're a writer now. Like they just let him take it over because they wanted to focus on the music anyway. And that mm-hmm. all fit perfectly for them. And they wanted to go more complex. So everything just, came together like a like puzzle pieces and uh yeah they were happy to turn that over to neil and uh yeah this is where we get you know bytor and all these fantasy themes mm-hmm. and stuff and yeah the bytor and the snow dog was actually it was like their managers two dogs somebody had nicknamed them biter and snow dog and oh. they were all high one day laughing about well, i should write a song about it and so neil just took off and wrote a song about it and you know, named it by Tor and the Snow Dog. These two dogs that are fighting. Be able to take it from that, yeah. Well, he said he said it was just a joke that got out of hand. That's what. <laughs> that's how he referred to that song. So <laughs> that's fantastic. I love that. Yeah. I yeah, uh, yeah, that was you pretty know, hilarious. My thing going back to Montag. You know, this was of course uh, Pierce first with Rush. You know, but you could hear the difference already. Absolutely agreed. And. Killer opening track, Anthem, one of my all-time favorite Rush tracks. I mean, uh, Taupe inspired lyrics. There's more growth progressively, musically. Things we talked about and touched uh, beneath, between, behind. You start to really hear the more progressive sound by Tour and the Snow Dog. Arguably one of the first epics, I think, and Token inspired. Uh, drum breaks in that song are incredible. I just mm-hmm. uh, Fly by Night, classic, and Rivendale. Fairly token inspired, obviously. Lifeson really shines here on this album. That's right. I think Alex really, uh, yeah, brings up the Annie on this album. I mean, his yeah. playing is fantastic. I mean, does anyone write better lifts than Alex riffs than Alex Lifeson? Lifeson. I mean, his his ability Creative. to write cool, catchy, you know, riffs that will get in your head. He's amazing. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. done that yeah. all his life. You know, yeah. I, I, it's not just like the riffs, but the emotion that comes with them. He can make you feel this majestic and triumphant, hard rock and driving, but he also can write music that will make you weep, you know, or yes. very sad and introspective. So he's a there's an emotional layers in, in his playing and his playing style. Um, and I think that kind of coincides with the, the sound effects that he uses, you know, and, and the kinds of sounds he gets. <laughs> help communicate that kind of emotion, you know? And... I think it's, you know, Montag, I think on top of that, I think it's a choice of notes and phrasing and how he it almost, almost reminds me of like, you put him up there with David Gilmore, Pink Floyd. Oh. Gilmore yeah. even yeah. said, you yeah. know, yeah. It, you don't have to play 900 notes a minute. It's what you put into it. And that one note, yeah. that benders. And I think Lifeson's a great example of that as well. Yeah. yeah, certain guitarists are able to evoke some kind of emotion out of their out of their playing, mm-hmm. and yeah, he's one of them. There are a few that, and you know it when you hear it. Think of the solo for "Comfortably Numb." Oh, yeah. you know, I mean, that is just 
it's achy. You know, oh. there's just this longing and there's just so Yearning. much power yeah. and, and sadness and, and yeah, packed into the solo. And, you know, I, I also think of the solo, uh, maybe it's a show we should do just great solos. Um, you know, for the solo in voices, dream theater, you know, mm. that solo, it's there joy. are times where I've listened to that solo and I have, I have cried because I found it to be Lines so in the sand beautiful. does that to me. Uh, yeah. That solo in lines in the sand is just, absolutely carries me away pulls that heartstring, and you know and, and to get those yeah. players that do that that is special and unique and that's why yep. there's only a handful in this world that are yep. able to create that. yeah and mm -hmm. it's you know it's not uh it's not always shredding but mm -hmm. i can also you know rush also is a great hard rock band yeah you know i mean they have they are they are so versatile and and so wide ranging in their musical abilities that i feel like there's nothing they can't do you know? And do it expertly, like there's yeah. really truly. They there's. It's not like they were not the first prog rock band because Yes was doing things a decade earlier than Rush was doing. You know, so King I give all props to Yes well, King Crimson. Yeah. You know, they were that all that experimental prog, you know, prog Genesis was doing great stuff. You Tull. know, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. So they weren't the first, but they carved out a niche within that progressive hard mm -hmm. rock market that took them to places you know where the other bands weren't going so there's not not enough expletives is that the word i'm looking for uh not a phrase uh, <laughs> yeah there's not enough there's not enough i don't know words superlatives. that's what you're looking for thank you that's good. <laughs> you're just gonna start cussing rush out damn son of a bitch <laughs> Fucking rush! Oh, you you um, hit the animals again. Here we go. Here we go now. Here we go. Yeah. Nope. The edibles. <laughs> no, I wish I were, but uh, no. Okay. Uh, not this late. <laughs> the first three hours, good, and last four, you know, wind down, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this this album, the sound, the sonic sound is really rich as well. Uh -huh. Even though you can hear like. And the and the drum work in Bytorn and the Snow Dog, you hear the drums aren't like doom, you know, they're not beautiful sounding, but they're crisp. You can hear every tom, every yeah. little hit on the hi hat. You know, and Neil Peart is one who always loved his ride buried in the mix, which drives me crazy. Because he <laughs> plays like intricate rhythms. I want to hear it. Unless he's like playing on the bell and mm. stuff, as we'll hear later mm -hmm. on, you know, like on the song Animate, where he plays that bell a lot. I want to yeah. hear him play. I love that sound, but he just likes to wash in the background. But then, hey, hey that, he's he's the master. What do you want to go and say? But I love the sound of Fly By Night. It's 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 rich because even though I like the next album better, but the sound is not as good on the following album they brought up, the second album, nineteen seventy five. Yeah. Is there any more you want to say about Fly By Night, or should we go on to Caress of Steel? Uh, only that that album was recorded in five days. Fly By Fly Night. Fly By Night. Recorded in five days. That you wow. know, they mixed it after that. It's a little longer, but the actual Amazing. recording was all done in five days. Wow! So pretty crazy. You, you notice all crazy. these old these older artists, guys, that you go back even to Sabbath and they recorded in like three days or you know yeah. a week. Yeah, and you're like these all these are they're not taking months and months and months. These are true masters to do that, and that's what makes you so much respect and go back to those times. And I'll, I'll revisit those albums because you're like, oh 
oh my god they create a masterpiece in three days and you're like you, you can't believe it and here, here's another prime example of that so yeah because they're playing they're probably because they're playing live they're doing like the old school recording like when you hear stuff that came out of sure. motown it was pretty much one recording and done mm-hmm. you know you're playing live in a room this is what you get and that's what, that's what my guess too. You're all playing live. Yeah. You know, Nowadays, yeah. there's a lot of post production and a lot of extra yeah. It's stuff it's, it's like post layers added. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. It's just it doesn't sound alive anymore. You know, this, Some of this old good. stuff is refreshing. That's one of the things that I that caught me pre-listening to this stuff was like it's so clean sounding because it is a lot more stripped down and like mm-hmm. it was refreshing to hear some you know some of these old songs because it's just it was kind of a break for the ears. It's just pristine, or, organic, and lively. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it yeah. just hits you yeah. right there. You're like, wow, it's compared to a lot of, you know, future mm-hmm. releases and what we've listened to in so many decades. Yeah. But this is just, uh, it, it's amazing to me. I still go back to, I can't believe bands created these albums in like right, right. three, four days. So. Yeah. You know, not to toot my own horn here, but when I was recording the music for the Escape Fetal Pig's third album, Devils or uh, Salt Lake, I did all the instruments, you know, drums, bass, guitar, sang. I did it in two days so just that's all i'm saying Ooh, that's yeah. right man a legend right there we have our own yeah. right in our own show mr montag yeah <laughs> we, we got with efp oh. i'm very happy oh, to be a mason yeah that's a heavy rip <laughs> oh, uh, you've diminished so our show now good job <laughs> <laughs> no more viewers, viewers are rushed all dropped off everybody <laughs> left everyone's suing us <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh moving on to the second album of 1975 caress of steel and i have a lot to say about it but i'm going to turn it over to you guys why don't you guys start and i'll 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 join in after go ahead Dred. Up, you go go ahead. Oh, okay yeah. well yeah this one uh i think you mentioned it all, uh, before i i like this even better i think this is another for me another step forward for rush they lean further into their progressive side to the long form songs you know necromancer and of course fountain of lamneth is a monster a whole whole side of the album yeah i, I just I, I love this album this is one of my favorite early rush albums uh all in all uh bastille day is great great opening track yeah. um lakeside park is really bittersweet you know mm-hmm. there's something about that loss of youth you know knowing things are never gonna be like that forever and yeah it's a really great song really nostalgic mm-hmm. really Again, another song that kind of plucks at your emotions. Yeah, I love the dark atmosphere of uh, of Necromancer. Fountain of Lamneth is a little little more hit and miss for me, but uh, I still I love when Rush does long form, big monster songs with stories behind them and stuff. So I'm a sucker for those things or, or concept albums. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, we've talked about that before. So yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. I love the. Uh, a, a song that takes you on a journey like that. I'm I'm always down for that. So yeah, Dream Theater wouldn't have done those without these. You know, you think the impact oh, you know of it. Rush on other progressive bands. I mean, you know, Yes and Genesis were doing these kinds of things, but I think Rush was the more immediate impactor. Mm-hmm. You know, on on Dream Theater, and so Dream Theater's come become quite comfortable with these epic side long albums yeah yeah we're gonna do two songs in this album it's 80 minutes you know two 40 minute songs what you know we're gonna do a uh, double album the second album is one song <laughs> yeah exactly you know so right. we see that influence here you know 30 years before dream theater's doing it 20 some years and we're seeing it in its beautiful infancy you know mm-hmm. in, in rush yeah well yeah on, on top of my notes i agree with everything that slunk said i 
I believe this album almost broke them up. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was going to get there they were, later. They were not making any money off of this record. Right. Yeah. This was the, they were almost like so depleted that they were just like, we're almost yeah. done. Well, no, yeah. no. This album did not do well commercially. No. Yeah, it did no, not it sell not. tickets. It did not do well commercially. Yeah. I read an interview with Shocking. Getty Lee yesterday. Really he says this, this album may be one of his, his, his least liked because of that yeah. but he says but he meets too many rush fans who said they love it well, that he can't feel that way about it but his personal least favorite is presto which is i want to mind too because he said the rust the album with the songwriting was pretty flat you know and the and the, the audio as well as we get to it the audio is really thin right, but, right. but but um yeah I, I i get it you know this is like you chopped i love this album you know i think yeah, but, I, but I, I think i think it was another fantastic opener bastille day we've talked about mm-hmm. I think I'm going bald is just a fun song, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Lakeside Park, very Zeppelin-esque musically, but classic. Uh, Necromancer and Fountain of Lameth really showed their pro- really showed right now their progressive side, and uh, they're showing. You know what I was I, I embrace about the sound? They're showing they're not afraid to be different. At this point, uh-huh. they're taking their own. Like I don't care what you think. We're doing our own thing with it, and yeah, you know, and I give them much respect and props for that. And once again, here we have the case where this thing doesn't doesn't do well commercially. Here comes the label going, you guys mm-hmm. got to write us some radio-friendly songs. Right. And they, they were faced again with this crossroads. What do we right. do? Yeah. Do we continue doing what we want to do or do we, you know, and uh, no. And Rush says, nope, we're going we're gonna to keep doing the songs that we want. And well, they were thinking that was going to be like one because they had a yeah. contract. They had to write one more record, right? Eventually, that's what it came down to. The labels we're going like out, okay. we're going out with our own, with our heads held up. The labels yeah. like, yeah, you got one chance. Then we'll give you one more album to uh, to do something with. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what we'll an get, album that next we'll one get to will that be. next album. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's one of their most commercially yeah. successful. This happens time and time again. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a uh, you know an ultimatum by the label. The, the the band stands their ground and they end up making one of the best albums they've ever made and the most commercially successful but still stick to their guns it happens you know we've seen it we've talked about it with when we haven't done our dream theater deep dive but we've talked about that yeah you you're know, right you, you it with it up and it is, it is pervasive it is yeah. across the yeah. whole i think whatever genre you know mm-hmm. and and it's very interesting to see, you know, they come back with some of their strongest material ever. Some of these bands. Yeah, it's, it's studio execs just learn to let these artists be themselves. Uh huh. You know, mm-hmm. when you when you seek after trends, you're going to become the trendy band, and no one's going to give yeah. two shits about you. Yeah, they're just so concerned about the money, and that's whatever's it. hot now. In six months, we'll find the next hot thing. It's like it's yeah. exhausting. Thirty-one flavors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Crest of Steel. It, it may be in my top three albums. Rush albums. I I love this album. Um, sonically, it's not as rich as Fly By Night. I think it's a little, it's like a step step back. I'm not sure where they recorded it. But we are moving into larger, more sprawling themes, you know, and songs. I mean, Bastille Day is a great rocker. It could have been on Fly By Night. It had that kind of feel. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I think I'm Going Bald is really kind of quirky and odd. It almost feels out of place. But I like it. Because it just yeah. seems so goofy. Like this album was like almost like a hodgepodge of things, you know. And maybe that's why people bought it. They weren't sure what to do with it. I, I think that's exactly right. Were there seeing more think, of a consistency before that? Maybe. Okay. I think what hurt it at the time also is because Necromancer and the Fountain of Lambeth is so long. Listeners couldn't they couldn't deal with that. 
that much at that time. It was just too much. Although it's it's very surprising considering yes and Genesis did things like that way before. Yeah, but they weren't playing almost like they're not yeah, yeah, they're not playing 17 minute songs on the radio though. That's the thing. And maybe at the time Rush was getting, you know, Working Man was getting played and Anthem was getting played and and you know it got them popular and then people buy this album, they're like, Oh, this isn't what I've been hearing on the radio. You know, yeah, it, it is if different. That was your only exposure to Rush was through the radio mm-hmm. songs that were getting played. This might have caught you a little off guard. <laughs> yeah, I think the influence of of Peart's songwriting, his lyrical writing, really, it really started to show on this. And like I said, the progressive nature, and we'll get onto it even more as as and we talk about the band. Yeah, I think it just took people. It was like a, a left hook, you know, a right field. It just it didn't hit, it didn't resonate. But man, what a I really tremendous album. It's underrated, overlooked. And kudos to Rush for standing their ground. I mean, they're yep. they're a very young band full of young guys, you know, and and a late a couple and, years out starting, of high school, really. Yeah, and you're starting to gain some fame and some notoriety. And to be able to stand up to a record label at that point, you know, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, Neil Peart isn't the legend that he becomes. None of these guys, they're still just kids, basically, mm-hmm. you know, that are just starting out. And to be able to just go, yeah, nah, you know, we're going to, we're going to keep doing what we're doing and doing what we want to do. That's, that's incredible. And Respect I mean, yeah. And you oh, see yeah. that in, in Peart's lyrics as well, because of who he was being inspired by, you know, like mm-hmm. Ryan Rand and these other, other writers right. who show up in his, in his lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's all about the, the free will you know, as he writes about and, mm-hmm. and these kinds of philosophical issues that at the end of the day, they have to live with themselves and, and they wanted to go out on their own terms and, and uh, you know, kudos for their bravura, you know, they're just surety. You know, Not too many people yeah. have at that age, you know, right, cause you're thinking huh. we have a chance. Let's make some pop music. We'll get popular and we can do what we want. No, they're like, eh, we'd rather not yeah. do it at all than write shit music that we're going to be embarrassed by, uh-huh. you know? So yeah, I, this album, you know, I remember listening to it a lot one summer. I was grading papers, and I just, it was a hot summer, and I just remember grading and listening to this album over and over and over again because uh, I just loved it so much. So I, it, for me, I've got a lot of personal, you know, connections with some of these songs. Like you had mentioned, Dreadbull, Lakeside Park is just kind of bittersweet. That's why I wrote the first time Peart writes about the bittersweet nature of life and growing older. Mm-hmm. That's a theme that he visits in all these songs that he writes about those things, it is they're they're heart hitting, they're they're bittersweet. You know, like time stands still, the garden, which just makes me sob. It's just like, oh, I don't, you know. But he, this is something he writes about. And as a young man, he's writing about these things. And the necromancer again, we're continuing this dark fantasy. The yeah. musical swirls and the backward solos add to the strangeness of the mood. You know, then it gets heavy about four minutes in. <laughs> You got these crazy great solos, and and then you see the beginnings of this complexity, which will even continue into the next era. You know, will expand even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lee's wailing vocals just emote this angst. And then Bytor makes another appearance. It's yeah. like a sequel story. That's he shows era. up. Yeah, yeah, he shows up. And then it finishes with <laughs> this beautiful, yeah, this beautiful melody, which bleeds into Fountain of Lamneth, which I think this this is the song that makes the album for me, you know, this side spanning saga, the music is this emotional roller coaster where it's mellow, hard driving, it's complex, it's unforgettable. I think no one at the bridge, it, it appears lyrics are haunting and Lee's wailing 
really drives that emotion home. For me, that, you know, when I say cry out in desperation, but there's no one left to hear. I mean, this mm. these lyrics about the sea storming, the, you know, tossing the ship and all these kind of really kind of lonely, death confrontational almost, you know, and it very paints a picture in my mind. Um, and then you get that licensed guitar is smooth, but with that raw edge. You know, it's like that perfect early rush sound. And then Panacea, I think we have, again, it Peart's poetry, you know, uh -oh. Panacea, Liquid Grace. It just, you know, like, uh, you know, and that, and it comes off of that really dark, the bridge and angst and lonely. Then we get the sweet Panacea, you know, like, oh, it's so nice and lovely. But then we got the comeback around from the beginning of the album or the song. It wraps around. You know, it's yeah. like this full circle. We come almost like the cycle of life. Like, cause he says, I am, I am born. I am free. Yeah. It kind of mm -hmm. starts and it comes back around to that theme at the very end. And that emotional range really, I think is what still pulls, pulls me in every time I listen to it. And actually I was listening to it on the way back home tonight and just like, Oh my God, it, <laughs> it was like, it was like balm to my soul. It was soothing. Like, right. yeah, I, I, I just love this era. There's a simplicity in its complexity, if that makes any sense. Like mm -hmm. it's not overly produced. It's not overly technical. It's, it's just raw and real and there's, it's beautiful. You know? Well, I think that the, the Fountain of Lamb is a, a great uh, example of everything you just said, Montag. I think what that, you know, there, there's breaks in there, like they are in the pocket. Like in the recording, like they're just stop, start stuff, stop, start. And you're just like, what? Like, is this the end of the song or not? And they just continue to go on. And that's just showing the growth, progression as musicians, where they're going progressively with this band and stuff. And uh, I, yeah, I, I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant album. Um, mm -hmm. It's right up there for me. You know, it's up there with, with I think, one of their strongest albums. Um, Clockwork Angels, and it's up there mm -hmm. with Moving Pictures. It, you know, it is up there amongst the best. You know, uh, counterparts. I think those mm -hmm. are four of their strongest albums. And yeah, I, I feel, I, good. Yeah. Oh, I just I, I feel like I did read that this ended up going. Did it end up getting gold like later? Like this album just, you know, it wasn't received well at the time, but it did at mm -hmm. least finally get its due as people kind of came back around to it and realized. And kind of saw it for what it's for and maybe you know i didn't listen to this album when it came out i wasn't listening mm -hmm. to russian i was only six years yeah. old so yeah, uh, yeah. you know right. i had i had a much larger rush library and i could see this in the in the larger context so mm -hmm. uh, i think because of their touring because people loved their seeing their live shows um but i think i think that album got more play after the next album came out from what i understand sales went up because the next album was so big people were kind of discovering rush like, Oh my God, who's this band? And then going back to their earlier catalog and picking these records up. I think that has something I could be yeah. wrong, but I believe that's part of what contributes to that gold sale on, well, on aggressive deal. Well, let's move on to that next album. Yeah. Go right yeah. ahead. Uh, 1976, 2112, which I think has one of the best pictures of rush on the back uh, that you'll ever see. Yeah. <laughs> they were trying to figure out what they wanted to wear on stage. They weren't really sure. They were wearing these like ABBA-like robes, yeah. you know, like they're like Jedi Knights or something. Um, Neil has that sweet handlebar mustache. Uh -huh. going. Oh yeah. And the front with that 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 
that star. It's not a pentagram. It's like I think the galactic star or something. Of course, my dad was thinking, oh, my, you know, here I am listening to Satan music because it looks close to a pentagram. Mm. Um, but the galactic star. And I remember I remember getting this album. I wasn't like probably not until I was, I was 17 or 18, maybe even 19, because I on MTV, they had the Grace Under Pressure tour. They were playing that, mm-hmm. and I was listening to it. And I was familiar with some of the songs back in the day when I was recording on the VHS. And they played the song "Temples of Syrinx." I'm like, "Huh, I don't, I don't know that song. I don't recognize that." So I'm like, at Kmart or something with my cousin. I'm flipping through the Rush albums. I'm like, looking for something to buy. And I saw, look on the back. Oh, this album has "Temples of Syrinx." That's cool. So I took it back and I listened to it with him. I'm like five minutes in, he's like, "Is there any lyrics to this? Is this just all music?" I'm like, "I don't know." Because that intro is just so powerful. Yeah, the overture, yeah. Yeah, you got uh-huh. all this music, and like, what do you mm-hmm. say about side one? You know, like words like masterpiece are strewn about so casually, uh-huh. they can almost be ineffective. But that this side, it is the culmination of the last two albums. It's a grandiose sci-fi fantasy epic with a narrative that spans history, exploration, and wonder, despair, invasion. You know, and I think Peart's lyrics are at the top of his form, you know, in the song where he's the guy is learning how to play this guitar in the cave and he's as lows that fall gently like rain Well, highs build that high, like a mountain and lows that fall gently like rain. Like, Oh God, that's beautiful. You know, yeah. Yeah, this backdrop of this dystopian future where no one's allowed, there's no emotion, no one's allowed music or anything like mm-hmm. anything emotional. And then, so this guy finds this ancient, you know, guitar in a cave and starts plucking at it and it's kind of discovers, yeah. rediscovers music. And that, yeah, that's what makes it so powerful. Like he's mm-hmm. never experienced anything like this. And yeah, well, I, I, I think it up pretty fast, fast though, you know, pretty well. <laughs> yeah, guys, yeah, I, I think it's also it. very, very prophetic at that time, you know, a world with no, no music. No, but look what happened in the 80s with PRMRC and everything else, the book burnings, Bible burnings, record burnings. I mean, that's the censorship issue. And boy, this was prophetic before its time. It's almost like, I, I'm, I'm sure they did not intentionally write about that to be that. But if you look at where we came in modern time, you know, in the 80s and stuff, well, it's right along with that. It's right along with that lyrical basis and that concept. Yeah, I think that was a good good uh, coincidence, what was happening culturally. I, I think this is another example of Peart being influenced by one of his favorite writers, Ayn Rand, who was all mm-hmm. about writing about the individual struggle against the suppressive society. And you see that in her other works, you know, Atlas Shrugged and these other ones um, who, you know, so you have this individual who has ethics and morals and a code of what to do. and And everyone around him is trying to get him to kind of subvert those and to kind of say take the shortcut take the easy way and and it's about the struggle of that now you know politically rind is the and you know ayn rand she's divisive um but here was really into her lyric and this notion of this individual the the individualist and how yeah, those philosophies mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. and so you see that i think even on the back of 2112 you'll see the story was inspired by ayn rand Oh, um, uh, so. uh, the song Anthem was, she actually wrote a book named Anthem okay. uh, on which the oh. song was based. And okay. 2112 is kind of, I don't know if it's exactly a sequel, but some of the the elements in 2112 are, are kind of uh, pick up on some of the things from 
the song anthem it's mm-hmm. almost a continuation in a way but uh yeah exploring those kind of philosophical yeah. uh, so you see ideas. the connection between ayn rand and how that was so important to appear that you know he's writing about this because this is what what he's into telling these stories and i think that's what makes it powerful uh, dreadful is that you have this story told by this point of view and hearing you know seeing the struggle against the oppressive society you know the arbiters of taste the priests um trying to control every aspect of this monotonous life you know and the story is so compelling because you know the dream sequence where he has this vision and he sees what could have been Oh, it's heartbreaking. You know, when I think about all the, what my life could be in a world that I have seen, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, it is heartbreaking because then you also have Getty Lee's like that screechy, howling, wailing place of pain. You know, his lyrics are like coming from this place of despair and hurt. And it's just a, and then you got this crazy solo by Lifeson coming in. This all this passion is like this crescendo has been building and it's just like an oh you can't help but feel emotionally just wrung out by the right. time you are finished with this side of the record you know amazing. yeah it amazing. is an absolute amazing. journey <laughs> an mm-hmm. emotional yeah. journey that it yeah is. It, it is just a an amalgam of incredibly talented gifted musicians who are like taking their last stab at doing what they want yeah. and like they yeah. said after this record the record company never bothered them again with anything they just said wow. you got carte blanche to do whatever you want and uh that's yeah. a thought, lot right there that says a hell of a well, this yeah. album this album saved their careers you know yes. I mean, it really did just like kiss alive saved kiss i mean everyone mm-hmm. loved their live shows their records weren't selling much but when the kiss alive came out it was huge this is what huge. made them who they were and this this is 2112 you know did the same thing for rush um so I think the first side is one of the best sides of music and any any rock album or any album yeah. I've ever heard. Agreed. Top to bottom. I mean, it's up there with like Operation Mindcrime. Good. I mean, this is just a phenomenal piece of music. You know. Yeah, every every section, every bit of that song is just is oh. I don't know, it's it's one of those mm-hmm. songs that goes above <laughs> the all you can't really quantify it, you know. It's, yeah, and when you Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, well, I was going to say, as part of this album, my notes say the band is on fire on this, you know, and I thought the whole 2112 Overture, Temples of Syrinx, it's a must-have for any Rush fan. It's cohesive. Uh, it's how, how all epic tracks should be measured by, I put in parentheses on this. Yeah. Uh, confident. Newfound confidence in the band. Amazing time changes. The whole band shines. Uh, you get to hear some of those Neil Peart triplets Neil's at the Tom end work, Neil's yeah. Tom work I was going to mention is incredible and tasty in it uh, Passage to Bangkok opening riff is iconic um, and harkens back to the first two releases a little bit Twilight Zone moody especially around the chorus uh, beautiful melodic opening riff and yeah verses are bouncy um, Lessons uh, I think is very underrated on the album um, and Something for Nothing great chorus and it's a nice finish to the album. So that's yeah, why I never on that. Yeah. I love watching people's reactions to this record when they play it. Because they people who never listened to Rush or never heard this album. And to watch them go through the emotional experience of like the lyrics and the in the in the music, 
that's really rewarding because it it reminds me of how I felt, you know, that first time or the first 10 times I hear, or mm-hmm. now I'll still listen to it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I still feel that. I still feel mm-hmm. that tug, you know, but for side two to me is less effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge, you know, passes to Bangkok. They were playing for a couple tours after that. Um, it, it's got this mystical feel, which I kind of like, and I like the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Twilight Zone, I'm, I'm not crazy about. I, I, to me, that's one of the ones that's more of like a throwaway or a filler. Um, Lessons does sound like it could come from Fly By Night. I think it's a, got that sound. Tears is quite sentimental. It's something for nothing. I, I love the music in the verses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that might really be the strongest, yeah, strongest uh, song on side two, uh, something for nothing. But, Agreed. Um, but so to me, it's not like a balance. an album is out of balance. I just think they joyously blew their wad on side one and i can forgive side two even if there wasn't anything anymore than just side one i am perfectly happy with that yeah because it's 18 or 19 minutes of some of the best music you'll experience you're gonna ever have mm-hmm. yeah i think i like side two a little better than you uh, passage to bangkok is a really cool song which i found was basically uh you know, I, one thing I learned about Rush doing this is how much they like to smoke weed. Those guys really like their weed. And Passage of Bangkok was all about, it was basically a travel log on where to buy the best weed. So they, Bogota, Acapulco, Morocco, Bangkok, all those, this is all uh, good places uh, to buy weed. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of early Rush all was very, uh, Kathmandu, <laughs> Nepal, yeah, all those. I found that hilarious. So yeah, this was because you don't see them as being a big party band. They're they're cerebral, and that's maybe what it was because they have the pot and like if they're smoking sativa, then they're totally getting the cerebral high, Uh you know. Then and that very well could be it. I don't think we have rush without without heavy doses of weed. You know, I don't just like just like Eric Wagner said. You know, weed and me are soulmates. Yeah, exactly. They just um, they didn't talk about it so much as you know, you right? Know, yeah. That's what kind of caught me off guard. I'm like, wow, these dudes do smoke a lot of weed. That's kind of yeah. funny. I I'm that. getting educated because I never knew. I mean, I so maybe I'm just naive, and I never knew that Rush was like that. They, <laughs> well, you don't see them. You're, you're educating me right now, so. Yeah, they're not like Snoop Dogg, where that's their thing. You know, they, that, that's the first <laughs> right. thing you learn about them. This is kind of not something that they never really. They, yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't I celebrate know. it, but it was definitely part of their. Wow. At least their early days. I don't know if they continued throughout their career, but I don't know if you remember the uh, the from the documentary where Gene Simmons was talking about when Rush was opening for them on their tour. Kiss was like early 1975, 76, probably 76, and Rush was opening for them. And so they would like after the show, you know, Kiss is partying. They got all these girls, and they would go to like Rush's room and knock on the door, and they hate Gene's like, "Hey, you want to come down and party?" And then. They're like sitting in their room, like reading books. They're like, now we're good. You know, <laughs> they're like reading yeah. instead yeah, of like reading. rock and roll. I saw like, no, they're, they're all like nose deep in books. <laughs> and that, that was especially true with Neil. Of course he just, he, well, of course he never, the interviews and he didn't, mm-hmm. he, yeah. he's very sure. private that. And he loved to, that, that was his thing on the road all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Read, very read, read. Very well, they all, they all became avid readers. Everything. They said, well, we got so much time between shows. What else are you going to do? You know, you sit on a bus for 10 hours. So they just began reading, you know, and they became, mm-hmm. all of them became avid readers. That's before Neil Peart began, like, riding his bike, you know, between shows or his motorcycle, you know, and began yeah. to ride that way. But, yeah, just avid readers. I always thought that was the funniest story. Like, I can just envision them sitting in. It almost reminded me of the movie Slapshot, 
with the Hanson brothers, you know, and the coach comes in and Hey coach. And the boys are like sitting there with, the, they got the, the slot racer set on their bed, you know, racing cars. And everyone else is like drinking and partying. They're like, Hey coach, you know, they're all playing with toys. Like that's rush. Hey Gene, we got a bunch of girls. You want to come out and hang out? It's like, no, Gene no. Gene Simmons reading. invites you to party with him and you, you, you just stay in your hotel room and read books. Exactly. Like, it, Gene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny. But again, rush doing what, what they want. They're, they're not going to be, pushed into anything that they don't want that they don't mm-hmm. feel like doing you know yeah Incredible. and i think i think you they know, realized that their music was definitely a, a you know appealed to the a certain demographic you know mostly yeah. the, the sausage yeah. party because it was also <laughs> on that all the uh the documentary where they're going to dinner and the documentary you know alex license in the car he's driving and he's like, the guy asks him, he's like, so why are you still do this music? And Alex is for the chicks, you know, <laughs> like, oh, oh my oh. God. You know, it was what just, a, and what, oh. what a, what a great one. They're all three at that dinner thing. That was wonderful. And that, that yeah. I, I had to, I had to find the, the full length DVD or Blu-ray version because it's five minutes longer, or eight minutes longer or something like that. Mm-hmm. I was just howling, laughing because it's the first time you really see Neil Peart like drunk. They're all acting goofy. I'm like, yeah. That's awesome because he's so very guarded and never Curious. like praise, you know, never like praise. He would talk about drums, talk about his motorcycle, but as soon as someone became like a fan, he just withdrew. And and I would be so afraid of doing that. It was always my fantasy. Like once I found that out, like, okay, if I ever meet Neil Peart, I'm going to talk about his motorcycle because he liked, he liked talking to people like at roadside mm-hmm. cafes on the road. And I always thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to see Neil Peart. We're going to talk about his bike. I'm not going to let him know that I know about Rush until the like, when I'm getting ready to leave or he's getting ready to leave. I just want to say thanks for the music. Yeah, it was always like my fantasy. That way I wouldn't drive him away and make him feel awkward, you know. Right. But, um, yeah, that was he. they were my number one bucket list. In, in general, guys, I think that, you know, the, the most respectful thing about these, they never were painted in a box. They did whatever they wanted to do. Uh-huh. Right. That's, they, they carried on through their entire career. And, yeah. uh, and wow. with the three members. you can't say that you can't say that with a lot of bands. You cannot. Yeah. This is one of those you put in the the top tier, right? You in top three, yeah. top five. That you respect them that much because they did it their way. Yeah, yeah, and taking that stand early, it allowed them to just be who they are and be a a unique band, not just another rock band that sounds like all the other ones. You know, it allowed them mm-hmm. to just just be them and be unique. And Rush is unique. You know, nobody yeah. sounds like Rush. Nobody nope. sounds like Getty Lee. Like, you know, there's just no bands that sound like Rush. You know a Rush mm-hmm. song as soon and you as will you never right. have a drummer like Neil Peart. No, and, and even when you hear really good Rush covers, like when Dream Theater mm-hmm. covers Rush, mm-hmm. it's the, it it's good, but it's not Rush. Right. You hear right. it. It's the same notes, but not the same spirit. Mm-hmm. There is something right. inherently there's about these magical. two guys. Yes, that chemistry yeah. is 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 magic, and it's just never gonna never gonna be anything but that. There's no one could come Thank in. Thank God we have their discography to love the rest. Yeah, of our life. and That's, so yeah. much good music. Speaking of, I, I think we've we've said everything we we want to say about about twenty one twelve. The masterpiece. Because now we're gonna we're gonna finish up our uh, deep dive with with what I think kind of bookends this era, or at least, you know, these eras I've noticed kind of get accented or punctuated 
with a live album. It's like the band knows, like, we've come to a point, let's put out a live record, which kind of encapsulates where we've been for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And this first live album is All the World's a Stage, 1976. Again, we got two years with two albums coming out. So they've been on the road, they're playing. You know, and I think this is a really great recording of early Rush, what I they agree. sounded like. And it's a strong set list. The band sounds really tight. The only issue I have with this record is the audio itself. The, the recording, it, it, it sounds weak. It doesn't do them justice. It sounds mm-hmm. a little thin, agree? a little tinny, but the songs themselves and hearing them play these live, it is a phenomenal record of early rush. You know, you just it, it's just raw and, and rocking. It's not studio tricks. It's just them on stage, you know. And that's well, this I was, I believe, on the uh, this was a sold out twenty one twelve tour. Right, it came and, after twenty one twelve. Yeah, and it, I, I agree with Montag. Montag, uh, the great track list. My goodness. Yeah, a strong opener in Bastille Day. Uh, it's cool. They did the whole twenty one twelve overture and Temples of Syrinx, and then uh, cool medleys of Fly by Night in the mood. And I thought Working Man and Finding My Way was really cool as a medley. And I, I just thought it's a statement. They had arrived. That's what it was for me. And that that book ends that whole the first early albums. And you're right about that, Monte. It's just that here we are rush. We have arrived out. We are at our mm-hmm. now we can go anywhere we want with us. So Yeah. And I've actually uh, read that the uh, liner notes actually say that this album marks the end of the uh, the the first chapter of Rush. So uh-huh. they even intentionally they intended this to be the end of their yeah. first chapter. Wow. Uh, and yeah, for a band that only been together for what? They've only been together for like two, two years. years. <laughs> yeah, two and a half <laughs> yeah. years maybe at this point and they were just tight. I agree that the 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 audio quality and sound wasn't great, right. but I'm sure they didn't have, you know, they didn't have the big budget yet to to do a real good live, but the the playing you know, those guys are just tight as you can hear the emotion and the tightness you write on that mm-hmm. live record. You're like, yeah. wow, Absolutely. this is a Flawless. band that's really, it's come to another level here. Yeah. And and I think we'll all agree. Rush is one of those bands that sound best live. Like they are a live band as good as they can be on, on album. And mm-hmm. I don't think other than like the tinny quality of this one or, or, or rather like Crest of Steel and, and the thin production of like Presto and Roll the Bones, they are still live. They are one of the best bands you will ever see live. Like Bar they none. are perfection. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't, it, the, by perfection, I don't mean sterile. Like we've got to play everything, but, but they all have a chemistry that exudes energy and that there's a dynamic friendship between the three of them. It like goes beyond said, the songs themselves. It goes beyond the songs. Yeah. Themselves. And they, they, they decided early on, even even with the new guy, as they were, even Getty Lee was referring to appeared as the new guy 30 some years later, even though he's the new guy, you know, because they had that Canadian sense of humor. But they decided early on it was not going to be just a democracy. They were not going to do anything unless all three members agreed to it, which because they did not want it to get two people, to te- you know, teamed up against one. They only got three of them. They all have to work in harmony. And I think that was part of it. Like, no matter where they went. Because there are some eras where I know Alex Lifeson got kind of a little, little miffed toward the end of the keyboard era. Like, I want to play guitar again. Um, mm. Where they they were willing to take these experimental journeys with one another because they trusted, they loved one another. They were great friends. 
And nothing they did was a two-to-one. It was always all of us or none of us. And if there was ever something they couldn't agree with, they said they just threw it away because it wasn't worth fighting over. And I this mean, is how you last 40 years as a band. This is how yeah. you survive that long. Yeah. That's just being Canadian and, and they're just so fucking nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just kind of check your egos and, you know, come to one of that. The few uh, bands, one of the few bands, you know, Dread, that I could say that they, they checked their egos. And they did that early yeah. on and just remained such good friends throughout the whole thing and process. And boy, does it show, you know, in that democracy kind of thing with all of them and relationships. And it was just so heartwarming that that dinner scene in the, the documentary <laughs> that just it was great. I was yeah. really like, yeah, just wonderful. You know, I always go yeah. back to that. Just so how genuine and how much they mean to each other. And, mm-hmm. and still to this day, I'm sure. I'm sure Giddy and Alex, they absolutely, they've been devastated. They miss uh, Neil. So much I just, I just did read an article saying that the Alex and Getty are talking about doing some music together. They're, they're, they are, they are ready to start making music again, which wow. I was so happy to hear because of yeah. them. Not like, and it's not out of disrespect for Neil Peart. I mean, he can't, but they know it's not going to be the same, but it's going to be continuing the, the, the music, you know? And so I was hoping that Mike Portnoy would come in and play drums for them. <laughs> but, uh, the they would come out. It. They would, yeah. Oh, they could, of course. They would anybody come out could as, do it. Yeah, <laughs> I thought maybe come out as Rash. You know, like like Getty Lee would wear those occasional Rash <laughs> jerseys. You know. <laughs> oh man, Rash. <laughs> that would be that would be five kinds of awesome. But uh-huh. no matter what they do, I'm happy for them. You know, there are millions of Rush fans who are mourning along with them and want nothing but the best for them. And on the off chance that either of them are listening, you could tell how much we love you. We gush and just because we're fans and we want the best for you and you're welcome on our show anytime. We would love to have you on our show. How could you um, not love those guys? I mean, right. Yeah, I, I, I know. With you if you don't. I mean, they're there are like, eras that like, are stronger than others, but, but it's right. still Rush. I mean. It's they're a journey. Like people, you know? They're like the people, guys. Guys are like people. Like we grew up around each other. Like right there. Like yeah. you could just like, hey, oh man, that's my friend over here. You know, that's the kind of personalities they have, and just uh, so much morals and values that they carry, and they're so respectful and everything. They it's class. It's all class with them. Yeah. And they are so humble about everything that it's like, yeah, why not? You know, it's like, yeah, please. Come to my home, please. I'll invite you for dinner. Come on, Alex, Getty, come on over. Uh, if, you, if you say no to Gene Simmons that wants to party with you, you, you you're good. That's all good they, for me. That's, a thumbs up. That's two thumbs up for me. Got you. you turn down Gene Simmons? No. Hell yeah. <laughs> Love you guys. You're the best. Yeah, either that or you lift your shirt up and show them your belly. And <laughs> slap it. Your gut for It's like the belly of a great white whale. Right, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I did invite you know Eric Singer and Tommy Thayer. That'd be funny, you know. They oh, come yeah. on and do the show. And, <laughs> hey, Gina, I think Mark's got a problem with you. Yeah, want to listen to it. Um, you know, if he wants to come on and apologize for being a dick, I'll listen to him. You know, that's fine. But uh, but you know, yeah, Rush. When we when we did our Pop Desert Island bands with Carl Sanders. Mm-hmm. You know, Rush was my number one. I, I think they are my favorite band for so many reasons. And it's because I have been with them since, you know, since I was a teenager and have just experienced like the joys of their music that it speaks to me like few other bands do. 
And it's because it's not one sound. I mean, I love me some Motorhead, but, you know, like them and ACDC, they have a particular sound that stays constant. And if you like that sound, you're going to love that band. But Rush mm. will take you on a journey emotionally, sonically, you know, all kinds of places. And it's always satisfying. You know, at the end, there is just something you're either going to like a lyric, you're going to like a riff or a melody or a solo, <laughs> you're going to like something. And it's going to pull you in and keep you. And I will be listening to Rush till the day I die. I just, I cannot mm -hmm. imagine a world without their music. I cannot imagine a life without having Rush in it. You know, and that's just guys. Guys, I think you know, and, and thank you, Montag, for that. That's awesome. You talked about, but I think for me, it's like if there's one song that ever speaks to me, and I love a lot of Rush songs, but it's always Subdivision. Subdivision mm -hmm. just always kills that's me so, every yeah. time, lyrically. <laughs> What I feel at the time, what we went through that teenage angst. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to that, obviously, in later. I don't want to go yeah. into yeah. detail. But I really think that, that that one song really hooked me in and made me a lifelong fan forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, I, completely understandable. Yeah. that's mm -hmm. That actually will be in our third Deep Dive Part 3. Mm -hmm. um, our, our just a little teaser for our next Deep Dive, whenever that happens to be. Uh, we're going <laughs> to yeah, be covering a lot a, of coming uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, we, we have a lot of stuff coming down the pike, boy. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, we got uh, Farewell to Kings, Hemispheres, Permanent Waves, huh. Moving Pictures, and Exit Stage Left. Oh, man. Uh, great. I know. Era. This is oh, a great wow. Era. That's another I know. There's another oh. one. I know. Great. It's like, it's like, you know, hands up. <laughs> hands up. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, right. Exactly. And that's where I think most people are going to think that is the era of Rush. And I think they all are great eras, you know? So I agree. We got a lot to look forward to. I am so loving this deep dive. And mm. uh, I hope you guys out there listening to us, I hope you like it as well. You know, um, is there anything more you want to say about Rush before we uh, check out of here, gentlemen? Uh, well, I think uh, we said it all here. All that yeah. we need for, for part one. Part yeah. one, we'll have more praise for part two and three. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to run out of our expletives. <laughs> our rush right. expletives. <laughs> rush! With an exclamation point at the end. Rush! Goddamn Rush! Right. <laughs> hey, you can find Heavy Metal Horror on UnsaneRadio.com. You can listen to full episodes or download to your device. You can find us on Facebook, Heavy Metal Horror Podcast. And you can connect to us on Instagram. Look for Montag Lewis, M-O-N-T-A-G-L-E-W-S, one word, on Instagram. So we are on social media. Reach out to us. Send us an email. Tell us what you'd like to us to talk about. Uh, we've we've got some shows coming up, man. We've, uh, you know, last week we, we talked with uh, Ralph Sheepers of Primal Fear. And, and uh, we've got some other gems coming up pretty soon. That's going to be uh, awesome. I'm as shocked as you two gentlemen as our trajectory. So if you like what we've been doing so far, you ain't seen nothing yet because heavy metal horror is going to keep on rocking. You've been listening to Montag, Master of Illusion. And Chop Top. And Dread Bull. You're listening to Heavy Metal. metal.